Yo, I'm Amy. Good morning. The Old Testament reading is found in 2 Kings 2, 9 through 14. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please that there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they, set, as, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen, um, that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Terry. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Steve. Please stand, which everybody mostly has already, for the gospel reading. Thank you for that. The gospel reading is found in Luke 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you remain standing as we pray? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill our hearts. Make them soft. 
that we would have eyes to see you, we would have ears to hear you, and we would have hearts to believe and trust and love you. It's in Christ's name we pray to the glory of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We're resuming our series on the Nicene Creed. This is week four of it. And I think I've mentioned before, this is, this is a difficult series to try to recap each week because uh, there's quite a lot in it. And so if you're a, a podcast listener, you can keep up that way. Or if you've never uh, downloaded our podcast, this might be the time to figure out that we actually do have one. You can catch, keep up that way. And I actually post all of the notes, uh, the complete notes that I preach from on our New Life Downtown blog, which is newlifedowntownblog.com, simple enough. And, uh, and uh, you can find it there and, and keep up with it that way if that's helpful to you. Why are we doing a series on the creed? What is this creed? Why does it matter? One of the questions we're asking as we go through this series is what is it that Christians believe? What forms the core of our faith? Sometimes, especially in America, because we have so many different branches and offshoots of the church or of Christians, we're not really sure who's telling the truth, who represents a kind of historic or apostolic faith, if you will. And so we sort of reach for this popular preacher, maybe that popular preacher, or hey, this popular preacher has his own reality TV show, and on and on it goes until we say, ah, maybe it's this guy, maybe it's this gal. The creed is a way of saying, look, this is the rule of faith, this is the pattern of faith. In fact, from early centuries, some of the church fathers began to see the need for developing a kind of pattern of faith. The, 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 the phrase rule of faith doesn't mean rules, but rather this pattern. Uh, it's very much like a child learning to write and tracing the letters over and over again until they have it formed. And so there was a need to say, okay, look, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what we believe. Now, sometimes people say, well, Brother Glenn, we have the Bible. That's, what we, that's how we know what to believe. Well, it may not surprise you that early on in the first couple hundred years even of Christianity's history or existence, there were people who claimed to be teaching the Bible as faithfully and as truly and as literally as they thought that they should and were coming up with some very heretical things. And that's why in the different weeks we've talked about Marcion, Marcion's heresy, and he claimed, came right from the Bible, was that there was a God of the Old Testament and then a God of the New Testament. And so the church fathers said, no, that's not right. There is one God. And so the opening lines of the creeds is, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, and then we talked about the Arian heresy that said Jesus was not really God. He was just fully human. We said, no, that, that's not right. And then we talked about the heresy of docetism that said Jesus was God the whole time, that he was just sort of pulling the most elaborate prank on humanity ever, that he just pretended to be human. But that's not true either. He, he felt all of the things that we went through and in doing so redeemed our humanity. So the same council, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., the same council that formalizes the Nicene Creed is the same council that set in place the official canon of Scripture that said these are the books that belong, these are the letters that, that may be helpful, but they're not Scripture. And so creed and canon kind of work together, or if you like, creed and Scripture work together as a way of saying when we read the Bible... The creed gives us the bumper lanes on the bowling alley that says, here's how to make sure you don't throw a gutter ball. 
You can't read the Scripture and come up with something strange about who the Father is, who Jesus is, and who the Spirit is, who the church is, and what our hope is. That's why we're studying the Creed. We're studying it as a way of saying, okay, Lord, what is it that we believe? What needs to be at the core of our faith? The central question of the Creed, if you'd like to put it that way, is about who is Jesus? Naturally, you would think that Christianity is about Christ. And so the focus of the creed, if you look at it structurally even, the greatest amount of lines are given to the sections about Jesus. And so we've taken it in three different weeks. We talked about Jesus and his divinity, how he, who he is in relation to the Father. Then we talked about Jesus and his humanity, who he is in relation to us. Now today we're going to talk about Jesus in relation to our hope. Who is this Jesus in terms of what he means for the cosmos and for you and for me? But I'd like to zoom out just a little bit. Before we get to that specific thing, I'd like to suggest to you that at the core of our being as humans, there are maybe we could say these three questions that we're trying to find the answer to. I'd like to suggest that the first question we wrestle with and that different thinkers and philosophers or religions wrestle with is the question of, is there more to life? Is there more to life or is this it? All that we see, all that we hear, all that we experience, is this it or is there something more? Maybe the other question is, do I have purpose? One of the big gnawing questions in our soul, do I have purpose? Is there something for me to participate in? And is it, is it part of that thing that is more, or is it just kind of the small little itty-bitty thing? And then maybe the third question, is there hope for the future? Is there actually hope for the future? I would suggest to you that whether you realize it or not, through our conversations with people, through our education, through the movies, through the TV shows, through the music, through all of this stuff, the world is giving us a narrative, is giving us a way to answer these three questions. And I would suggest their answer is something like this. Is there more to life? No, this life is all there is, so live it up. That's the answer we hear. That's the response we receive today. If you hate your job, quit your job because life is too short. Or maybe of more recent fame, the Ashley Madison slogan, life is short, have an affair. This life is all there is, so you better make it great. Do I have a purpose? The world's answer to that is, listen, you need to make your mark Therefore, achieve all that you can. I don't know if this is true, but someone who administers the Strength Finders analysis test said to me, and I may be misquoting this, but I, I don't think so, said to me that America has the highest percentage of strengths in the achiever category than any other country. We are achievers. We've got to get it done. Check that box, close that deal, make it happen. And this is the narrative that surrounds us. Do I have a purpose? Sure, it's to be significant. It's to make your mark. Make it happen. Is there hope for the future? Here we kind of get one of two answers from the world around us. Either we get the future is progress. Look at science. Look at technology. Look at the new Apple conference. I'm telling you, we're going to fix all the world's problems. Or we have the movies, which there's been an uptick of TV shows and movies that show a dystopian future. One day the machines are going to get us. 
<laughs> the droids are coming. You know, the Clone Wars all of a sudden is like more of a reality, you know. Is there hope for the future? Either yes, in progress, or no, the robots will win. I think our stanza in the creed today actually addresses those three questions. Is there more to life? Do I have purpose? And do I have hope for the future? Here's the stanza of the creed. Would you say it with me? On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We're going to take this piece by piece. We're going to talk about the resurrection, the ascension, and the return. Three massive things we're going to try to cover today. First, the resurrection. There's so much that can be said about this, but here I want to give you a few of the headlines. One of the first questions is, where would they have come up with this belief And so sometimes you might hear this in a college lecture or something that, oh, the early Christians just took ancient resurrection myths and and, and transposed them onto their hero mythic figure, Jesus. The problem with that is actually what the early Christians claim happened in the resurrection has no precedent. It's actually remarkably and significantly different than any of the other resurrection myths. In the way they talk about Jesus' body being, having scars and being able to eat and drink and yet sort of appearing in rooms and then disappearing. This was not a ghost. This was not a vision of a grieving group of disciples. This was something they were struggling to explain and describe. Moreover, as good Jews, there was no real Old Testament reason to believe in what they saw. Do you know, for the majority of the Old Testament, the Jews did not believe in a, in a resurrection. They believed that when you died, you went to the grave, and it was over. That's why the psalmist says, God, if you don't save my life, how can I praise you from Sheol, from the grave? It's the psalmist's way of saying, God, you and I both know, it's game over when I die. So you, you want to extend the game a little bit? Put in a few extra quarters. Let me live and praise you a little. That's what the early Jewish belief was. Now, eventually, it, it, it changes a little. Ezekiel has this, is, has this vision of dry bones coming back to life. But resurrection was, at the earliest point, a metaphor for Israel being restored as a nation. Death was exile, and homecoming was resurrection. So when the prophets spoke about resurrection, they weren't thinking of a literal physical resurrection. They were thinking of a homecoming of Israel being restored to the land. Daniel is the first one who starts to talk about a righteous one who will be vindicated by resurrection. Isaiah then talks about a suffering servant, and somehow these two things get put together, and it's Paul is the one who explains it the best and says, I see it. I see what Isaiah said. I see what what Daniel said, and I see how it all sort of comes together, and it's coming together in Christ. But it wasn't what they expected. In the Maccabean period, in the period of the, 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 between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, you have this, this stuff that maybe the martyrs will receive bodily resurrection. You, you, you read a story of one of the martyrs, Jewish martyrs, saying, go ahead and cut off my fingers. I will receive them back again in the resurrection. So there's this sort of development there right before the time of Christ. But what nobody expected 
is that God would do this in the middle of history. They thought maybe at the end of history, but in the middle of history, this would happen. So why would they come to this belief? They had no real reason to believe it based on their own, their own scriptures. And yet, the creed says he rose again accordance to the scriptures. It's because Paul is beginning to stitch it together and say, look, this is what happened. But Paul isn't the one making it up. Paul says, look, I received this based on eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians, we heard the reading in our New Testament, a reading in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, look, he appeared to Peter and then the 12 and then more than 500. Paul's saying, look, I believe based on what was handed down to me. And what we have is the testimony of witnesses. Now stop for a minute. David Hume, the British philosopher skeptic in 1902 wrote sort of the the, the beginning phrase of of, of the, the beginning movement of sort of the rationalist skepticism against religion. And he said, look, if I were to take an improbable event like a resurrection and an and." eyewitnesses, which is more likely, that the witnesses were lying or that the resurrection happened? And Hume says, I know what I'm going with. I'm going with that the witnesses were lying because we know by science and by rational study of the world that this stuff doesn't happen. Now, what is important for us to know is that Hume was relying on a kind of science that Sir Isaac Newton had pioneered several hundred years earlier. Newton's view of the universe was the universe is a machine, and it has order, and it has predictability, and everything just sort of works, and if you study it, you see. And so based on that view of the universe, Hume says, well, look, this stuff doesn't happen. And so therefore, if it doesn't happen, it didn't happen, okay? But do you know that we actually have a different view of the universe now? That science now says, look, we've actually got subatomic on the subatomic level, quantum physics says, actually, things are quite random. That when you look a little closer under the microscope, there's not predictability. There's, there's, a, there's a wild universe that is beyond what we can see. And so all of a sudden, a new kind of science is maybe unraveling an old kind of atheism. An atheism that says, oh, this is a rational universe... The new kind of science is actually there's, there's more wildness and unpredictability to the world. So who says that we know all there is to know about the way the world works? In fact, I love, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, his fiction book. When Aslan comes back to life, the children are like, how, did the, how, how are you raised from the dead? And he says, the witch didn't know about a deeper magic that was at work. I love that. If quantum physics is a deeper reality to the universe, might there be a deeper magic at work in the world than what we have been able to see and measure and observe? Furthermore, there are so many events in history that we take on face value with far fewer witnesses than the resurrection. So claiming that I didn't see it is like saying I wasn't there on the moon, so that didn't happen. Now, there are conspiracy theorists who believe that. That's kind of silly. But. but I think what's beautiful is we're not given proof of the resurrection. We are given witnesses. And there's a difference. Because a historic witness of the church is not an invitation to arrogance. It's an invitation to humility. 
Proof can sometimes be an invitation to be proud. Oh, I know I can prove I'm right, which the new atheism sort of has. And in response to it, I think Christians don't say, well, I'll show you more proof. I think in response to it, Christians say, well, there's a humility about saying, everything I believe is that which I have received. And in the end, it's all witnesses of the living Christ passing this on from generation to generation to generation. Witness is an invitation to humility. What does this mean, though? Is this resurrection when the creed says he was raised? Does this mean like sort of a dead man just came back to life? No, no. That's called resuscitation. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is very different. Resurrection is a game changer. Resurrection was something that they had no pre-existing category for. That's why when you read the gospel accounts, it's really amazing because when you read the accounts, they don't all line up. Like, hey, Glenn, shouldn't we kind of be quiet about that? So one gospel writer says it was the women who saw him. Another one says it was Peter and John, which was right. Do you know that courtroom experts tell us that one of the surest giveaway that a witness is lying is when the story makes too much sense? That when the story is perfectly linear, people know you rehearse that. And that actually when people are recounting true events, they do it all out of sequence sometimes. You know. What did you do this weekend? Oh, we went for a hike. Actually, oh, that, that was last weekend. Uh, let's see, we had breakfast, and then we, we went to Denver. No, no, no. Uh, we went to the after. This is how you tell stories when you're recounting it. So in one sense, this variegated testimony that we have in the Gospels is a way of saying there's a lot of witnesses that are trying to put this thing together, and there's a few different versions of it. But what they all agree on is that Somehow he was alive again and in a way that was different than any other human body is alive. It's an, it's a, an astonishing thing. 1 Corinthians 15, if you go further down, verse 13, Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul, you said that already. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Listen to that. If the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. You see why this is a game changer. And then he says, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, they've they've already perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Do you see that? If it's only for this life, oh, that reminds me of the question we began with. Is there more to this life? Paul says the resurrection is God's cosmic announcement. Yes, there is more to this life. And your hope is is for more than this life. Paul says the resurrection is a game changer. The ascension. I love the ascension because, you know, resurrection we have in the evangelical circles anyway or sort of non-denominational world. We've got Easter. But most of us didn't grow up observing Ascension Sunday, so we sort of don't know what to do with this. Ascension, I don't know, sort of like E.T. goes home, you know, like, 
the spaceman returns. Well, well, I don't know what it means. I mean, let's not talk about it. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Where did Jesus go? <laughs> Intergalactic travel? I mean... Where the resurrection is full of a descriptive language, the ascension is full of poetic and prophetic language. Let me explain to you. Have you ever come across that scripture in the Gospels where Jesus says, I tell you, some of you will not pass away until you see the Son of Man coming in glory, coming on the clouds with glory. Have you read that, right? And you're like, well, that's a load of junk. Because they all died and he hasn't come again in glory. Right? Unless, of course, you have this database of Hebrew scriptures and you're like, coming on the clouds of glory, where was that story? <gasps> Daniel, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 says the human one, after his vindication, was coming on the clouds with glory up to the throne before the ancient one. And all of a sudden you realize coming is not down, it's up. That when Jesus says, you, some of you are not going to die until you see me, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory, he's saying, you're about to see me be ascended, ascending to the throne. All of a sudden now we're like, oh, I have, a new, I have new language for this. The ascension is not about Jesus' escape. It's about Jesus' enthronement. The ascension is about Jesus' enthronement. Think of it in the old, maybe you have Lord of the Rings imagery in your mind, which we can thank Peter Jackson for a few things. And the scene when Aragorn comes to his throne and he ascends up the steps to it, that's the idea. The ascension is meant to help us see Jesus taking his throne and ruling. But there's another parallel. Oh, let me read Ephesians 4 first. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended in the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the very opposite of escape. Doesn't it? That's the very opposite of where did Jesus go? Why did you leave us, Lord? Paul says he ascended that he might fill all things. He took a higher place that his Rain would cover all. That's amazing. That's like the military strategy of saying, take over the air and then you control the land. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to go up to the throne and then my reign extends downward. But there's one other image that, honestly, I had missed until I was studying for this a couple of weeks ago. Acts 2, verse 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses Verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Again, that image of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. But this story is reminiscent of an Old Testament story. We had it in our readings this morning. It's the story of Elijah and Elisha. What happens in that story? We just heard it. Elisha is the servant, the follower of Elijah, the great man of God. And he says, don't go. Elijah says, I, what, what do you want from me before I go? He says, I want a double portion. He says, okay, you got it. If you see me leave, then you'll know you've got the double portion. Now think about this, you guys. Think about this. 
Here are the disciples seeing Jesus caught up in the clouds. He's just told them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. This, this is not double portion. This is the full dose, the Godhead with you, the living God with you, living in you, filling you. Jesus says, that's what you're going to receive. And then how do we know, Lord, that this is really going to happen? Remember what Elijah told Elisha? If you see me being caught up, then you'll know. And the disciples see Jesus being caught up. And shortly after, they receive the Spirit. The ascension of Jesus is his enthronement and your empowerment. The ascension of Jesus means his enthronement and your empowerment. That's the power of the ascension. It means you now have the life of the, of the Holy Spirit of God in you, giving you a mission. Oh, that sounds like that question we had earlier. Do I have a purpose? Yeah, not just a purpose, but the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Wow. Now the third thing. Are you with me? We okay? I know this is a lot to take in. I hope you're, you're writing good notes. We're squeezing in a lot today. The return and the rain. This is where I need a bit of your permission. Will you let me this morning be your pastor? Because as your pastor, I would like to challenge some things that are out there about the return of Christ. And I know they're out there by big names, by pastors, by people that we might, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's some things we need to carefully rethink. And the first is how biblical prophecy works. Biblical prophecy doesn't work like a code. There's no theologian of the church throughout the century that has properly handled the scriptures or prophecies and treated it like code. Meaning... Signs in the skies, current affairs, events in the Middle East. <gasps> this is the code. Let's piece it together. <gasps> I see it. Instead, prophecy is always treated as symbol. Now, what's the difference between symbol and code? Both are images, right? Yep. Neither of them are literal, right? Code says this thing can only refer to this thing. The beast must be so-and-so. The thousand-year reign must be such-and-such. But symbol says this shape looks like many things. That actually there have been many beast-like rulers of empires. From the emperor Domitian all the way up to Hitler, and on and on and on it goes. We say, oh, there's been many beasts. Like, I see the symbols in the book of Revelation, and they take a lot of different shapes. The trick with some of the stuff that's being said, you guys, is that you will not find it in any of the writings of the church fathers or the theologians of the church. It's always been a misuse of Scripture. So I'm saying it to you not because I like to throw other preachers under the bus, but I'm saying it to you because I care about how you handle the Word of God. 
And the Word of God is not a code for 9-11 or for the stock market crash. The Word of God reveals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it reveals our hope in terms of shape and symbol, not code and current events. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but if you'll let me be your pastor, I want to challenge you to think about this, okay? One of the things that we've become our favorite thing in America is to think in terms of a rapture. Rapture theology is only 150 years old at best. You won't find it in Calvin. You won't find it in Luther. You won't find it in Aquinas. You won't find it in Augustine. You won't find it. Oh, but we find it in Paul. Or do we? Well, doesn't Paul say we'll be caught up in the air? You know what Paul was doing? Paul was using the language of Greek and Roman rulers. When a visiting ruler would come to a city, the citizens, the actual citizens, and this is important because in the ancient world, not everyone who lived in a city was a citizen of the empire. Some of them were slaves. But the citizens showed their status by leaving the city to meet the ruler and then escorting him back in. So when Paul says, we shall go out to meet him, it's not a, we'll go up to meet him, and in his chariot he'll lift us up. Swing low, sweet chariot. I'll fly away in glory. Uniquely American visions of the end. Because what Paul was imagining was that we would go out to meet him and usher him back down to reign, to reign, to actually bring to pass all that he promised. Oh, Glenn, what about the gospel of Matthew where it says two people will be working in a field and one will be caught up and one will be left behind? Remember that old Larry Norman song? I wish we'd all been ready. (laughs) The siege of Jerusalem happened in the year A.D. 70. By that time, most of the epistles, if not all the epistles, had already been written and the gospels were being written When Jesus said, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left behind, he was talking about a siege that actually happened. Insomuch as these prophecies are predictive, they were predictive toward the destruction of Jerusalem that happened, a true historical event that happened in A.D. 70. In fact, for some of the early Christians, one of their validations that Jesus was who he says he was was because he had said that this would happen, and it did It's not about disappearing all, you know, sort of the left behind thing. Oh, look, there's a guy's clothes in a car, unmanned, you know. I watched those movies as a kid. Thief in the Night, Late Great Plant. They're terrible. (laughs) And you won't find it in the Scripture. Not only is it a mishandling of Scripture, it doesn't do anything to bring about the vision of hope that the creed calls us to. The creed calls us to a vision of hope that isn't about your escape, but it's about the kingdom's arrival. It says he will come again in glory. He'll judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. This is the hopeful picture that God will not abandon his world. God will make his world right again. 
When we stand up and say to the world on street corners or on YouTube videos that, hey, things are going to get tough, but hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get out of here. As if we're being airlifted from Vietnam. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope, the way the creed reminds us, is that he is coming again to reign. Now, this word judge is a powerful word. Because I don't know what you think of when you think of judgment, but probably what you think of when you think of judgment is gloom and doom. Like, oh, God, oh, God. I went to a church in the UK where you could see the, the whitewashing over it, but the old medieval art was of a throne and then tormented souls under the throne. Imagine that as your call to worship every Sunday. <laughs> Come on, church. There's Jesus. See all those tormented souls? Don't be one of them. Come on. Put something in the bucket for the love of God. And the reformers, the reformers said, that's not the way to call people to Jesus. And so the reformers whitewashed the churches. Sometimes the reformers were accused of hating art. They didn't hate art, but they loved the gospel. And they knew that the gospel is about the hope that Jesus brings, not not just the terror of tormented souls. And so they said, can we whitewash that and begin with Jesus? The word judgment. Look at its Hebrew originals, mishpat. The word judgment in Hebrew in the Old Testament is related to justice and judgment. Why is this important? Because you can't have justice without judgment. And you can't have judgment without justice. This is why, what did the psalmists say when they say the Lord is coming to judge the earth? You know what they say? Let the trees clap their hands. Let the earth rejoice. He is coming to judge the earth. Like, what? If we were to set some of those psalms to music, they would surely be, we'd think, heavy metal, you know, minor key, you know, he is coming to judge the earth, you know. But if you read the psalm, I'm in a rare mood, I'll blame it on jet lag. But if you read the psalms, it's happy, it's hopeful. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. He's coming to judge the earth. Why is that good news? Because it means the oppressors will not be oppressed forever. It means the orphans will not be orphans forever. It means those who are being terrorized by tyranny will be free and dignified one day. It means the humble shall be lifted up and the high shall be brought low. Let the earth rejoice when the Lord reigns. Amen? Now, yeah, come on. All right, all right. Do it or don't do it, but don't, you know. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> but listen, what if that was our loudest message about the end times? What if our loudest message about the return of Christ is you see those martyrs who bent down on the, sh- on the shores of Tripoli and had their necks slit? What if our, our hope is one day Jesus will restore them and give them new bodies? And what if the oppressors and the, and the ones who have, who have been the perpetrators will be brought to judgment? What if justice will fully arrive on the earth? This is our hope, church. Not blood moons and stock market crashes. Stop! Stop! That's not our message of hope. That's not what the creed calls us to think of. And by the way, it's deeply troubling to me that when rich Americans speak about the end times, we speak about a stock market crash. (sighs) Are you joking? 
How many martyrs are, are giving their lives all around the world and have been dying? But that's not the end times. It's only the end times if we have a dip in the Tao. Come on. Don't fall for the lie. You, can, you have been called with a better hope than that. So the human questions, is there more to life? Do I have purpose? Is there hope for the future? You know what the creed says? It says because of the resurrection of Jesus, we share his life. Is there more to life? Yeah, it's resurrection life. It means you will never truly die. It means the worst that happens to you in this life will never be the last word on you. Do I have a purpose? Yeah. Because of the ascension of Jesus, we share his mission. You are the ones that continue the work of God on the earth today. You're the ones who extend forgiveness and justice and freedom to the prisoner. You're the ones that participate in his mission. Is there hope for the future? Yeah. Because of the return of Jesus, we share in his future. I love the way the old Anglican Bishop Leslie Newbigin said, he said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. <laughs> That's it. Are you, do you think the world is in a bad shape? Do you think things are going to get bad? I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That, church, is what makes us different. Not because we're smart about codes, but because we know Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? I want you to think this morning about some of the alternate narratives that you've believed to answer those questions. You've looked for the, the more to life in your job or in your wealth or in your friends. You've looked for purpose in terms of your achievement. You've looked for hope in terms of what may or may not happen to you or your family. Jesus is so much more. Jesus is so much more, church. What he offers you today is to share in his resurrection life. To share in his mission in the world. To share in his future of everything being restored and made right. This is a moment to confess moment to say, God, I'm turning away from my small picture of life, from my small picture of purpose, from my small picture of the future. And God, I want Jesus. I want Jesus to be my life. I want Jesus to be my mission. I want Jesus to be my all and my future. That's what this is about today. Confession is a chance to trade, to trade your small picture of life and purpose and future trade it for what we've been offered in Christ. Would you do it?
Let's pray this prayer together this morning. Most merciful God.